Good morning. The scripture for today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, and you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1030. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you, were ransomed, you ransomed people for God, and from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Would you pray with me? Father, you've served us so well this morning already in hearing your words sung and hearing it read to us and hearing from one another in our share time and praying together. You've already met with us so powerfully. So we ask that you would continue to do so. Meet with us here by the preaching of your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Children have a way of asking paralyzing questions. Anyone who has lived with small children or worked with small children knows what I'm talking about. As children begin to talk and ask questions, you quickly realize that you you really don't understand reality as well as you might hope. These little people we've created expect that since we're taller and we drive cars, we kind of got everything figured out which is humiliating because, of course, we, we don't. What is the Internet? How does it work? I don't know. <laughs> Pay attention in school. Maybe you'll find out. <laughs> when one of our daughters was about two years old, she often asked, upon entering a room, what are we doing here? <laughs> not, not what are we doing, but what are we doing here? It's a wonderfully suspicious question. I see shoes being tied. I see coats being donned. I see keys being fetched. What are we doing here? What's all this busyness about? And you had better have a good answer. 
or you will be pressed with that question until reason sufficient has been found. Now, that's the kind of question I want us to answer this morning. You live a busy life. There's lots going on on your calendar. And I'm wondering, could you answer the question, what are you doing there? What is your life about? Do you know? We're a fairly busy church. We have a lot going on in our bulletin if you look at it carefully. Do you know why? What are we doing here? And underneath all of that, do we know what God is doing here? Do we know what God is doing in the world? Do you know His mission? And is what you're doing and what we're doing as a church in sync with what He's doing? Do you know the Lord's mission in this world? And are you committed to it? That's what we want to think about this morning from God's Word. We want to start by asking, what is God's mission? What's He doing here? And then move forward toward making sure our own mission aligns with His. And we're thinking about this today as the final message in our series entitled, our next 30 years. We've been looking at the fundamental commitments that have characterized our church and must continue to characterize us in the years to come. And mission is the last of these commitments. Now, in order to see what God is up to in this world, we need to start at the beginning, the very beginning. So let's turn in our Bibles to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter, the very first book, the very first verse in the Bible. Genesis 1. Follow as I read the first five verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now the most obvious thing to note in these opening verses of the Bible is that before anything was, there was God. He exists as God without need or without help in a timeless eternity. And the story begins with this self-existent God building a world out of darkness. He's a master craftsman, and his means for building is his word. We saw that in verse 3, that God speaks and light bursts forth. But look down at the page, and you can see this reoccurring refrain of God's creative work through his word. Look at verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. You'll see the same thing in verse 14, in verse 20, in verse 24, and in verse 26. This dazzling framework of this world is being set up, and its spaces are being filled, how? By God's creative word. And that's not the only repeated refrain we see in the creation account. In verse 4, we read that God called his creation good. And we see that repeated as well in verse 10, if you look at it, in reference to sea and dry land. You see it in verse 12 in reference to vegetation. You'd see it again in verse 18 and in 21 and in verse 25. Good, good, good. Now, Genesis doesn't spell out for us all that this creation's goodness entails, but in Psalm 19, we're given a very helpful commentary 
on what the glory of God's creation is for. You can stay in Genesis 1, but listen to Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4 as I read it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So did you, did you catch that? Part of the goodness of the creation is that it, by design, testifies to the glory of its maker. It bears witness to the beauty and the power and the godness of God. That's what glory is. It's the manifestation of the triune God in all his weighty perfections. And creation exists, Psalm 19 says, as a good proclaimer of that glory. So what was God doing in creating the world? He's building a stage upon which to show his glory. You know, in the ancient world, the more glorious a temple was, the more glorious the deity that the temple belonged to. And the true and living God says, here's how glorious I am. I'm going to make a whole world. I'm going to make my temple with ceilings of stars and and floors as deep as the ocean, with mountains for pillars and the sun as a lamp. That's the kind of God I am. And what does he put at the center of this stage? What does he put at the center of his glory stage? If you're still in Genesis 1, look at verse 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as the pinnacle of God's creation, God makes man, male and female, in his image and likeness. He places at the center of his world the thing made most to look like him, humanity, the image and likeness of the triune God. Man has a unique covenantal relationship with God. That just means he has a unique obligation to God to happily submit to him as a son and as his representative servant on the earth. He's to live in love to God and love to his fellow man as a reflection of his maker. And that's why the creation of man in verse 31, if you look at it, is very good. Man reflects God's glory uniquely, more clearly than a boulder or a tree frog. And man is given the commission in verse 28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, humanity is to fill the earth with more people in the image and likeness of God. That way, beginning with Eden and stretching out to the farthest reaches, the whole earth will be flooded with images of God's glory. That's God's mission from the beginning. It's a glory mission. But quickly, that glory mission is threatened by human sin. Let's go now to Genesis 3. This is probably familiar territory, but read it afresh in light of our work this morning. Let's read the first six verses of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now there's a lot that could be said about this story. But note that central to the serpent's deception of Eve in verse 5 is the promise that she will be like God. There was a wisdom that belonged to God in knowing good from evil that Eve saw and wanted. There was a glory that belonged to God as God that Adam and Eve tried to take for themselves. And in exchanging their own glory for God's, they fell. They died. They died spiritually in that they were cut off from the life of God, their covenantal relationship irreparably broken, and they were now doomed to die physically to return to the dust. And that's not just bad news for Adam and Eve. His sin, his death, counts for all humanity as our representative, as our head. If you're looking at your outline that you have in the bulletin, you'll see I have Genesis 5-3 listed where Seth, Adam's son, is described as fathered in Adam's image, in his likeness. And that's the fate of all humanity now. Man, as God's image, has been marred in Adam. And the New Testament affirms this at various points. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we're told that all humanity has borne the image of Adam, the man of dust. And in Romans 5, 12, we're told that to belong to Adam means coming into this world sharing in Adam's sin and death. And that marring, of the image of God that we were created with is reflected from the moment each one of us enters this world. We confirm by our actions that we belong to Adam, our father. We engage in the same exchanging of God's glory as our first parents. Turn to Romans now, Romans chapter 1, to hear what we do with God's glory as it's revealed to us in creation. Romans chapter 1, we'll pick it up at verse 19 of Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, is plain to humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, and they know him through his power and creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up and the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We'll stop there. So humanity is made to be a reflection of God's glory, but instead we turn away from it and prefer the glory of something else. We exchange the truth of a glorious creator God and replace him with idols of our own invention. Made to worship God, we worship anything else. Maybe you're here this morning as someone who's always wondered, why is the world so messed up? Why is your life so messed up? Here's the reason. Because everyone, including you, has turned from God and served a million lesser things. You were made for the joyful, happy, soul-satisfying work of reflecting God's glory through loving obedience to Him, but instead, you've committed treason against the maker of the universe, worshiping and serving something else rather than Him. And the only sensible, the only just punishment for a crime like that is an eternal one. The eternal torment of hell is right. It's a fitting fate for those who reject God because rebellion against one who is infinitely holy, infinitely just, infinitely good, infinitely loving requires an infinite penalty. Withholding glory from God is not petty theft. It is cosmic treason against an all-glorious maker. Hell, eternal death, is what your sins deserve. But God's mission is to fill the earth with his glory through those who bear his image. And the question is, how will he fulfill that mission when humanity has exchanged his glory, defiled his image, and is on a course not to see his glory spread to the ends of the earth, but to die in their sins forever and go to hell? How does God respond when the mission seems threatened? Well, in a word, Jesus. Jesus. He sends Jesus, God's Son, the all-glorious Redeemer, to restore the mission. How does Jesus bring restoration of God's glory mission? Well, first, in his person, As God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he comes as the perfect image of God. That's what Colossians 1.15 says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus comes as God's perfect, glorious image of himself, and he takes on true humanity. He is made in God's image as a man. And so he shows us by his life what it looks like for humanity to perfectly, obediently reflect God's glory. Jesus succeeds where we failed. But how does that help us, that Jesus succeeds where we failed? How does his perfection help sinners who have actually rebelled against God? For that answer, I hope you're still in the book of Romans. Let's flip over to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we'll pick it up beginning at verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this text says what we've already been saying in verse 23. All of humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. They've exchanged God's glory for a lie, but we can be forgiven and receive God's very righteousness, the perfection of Jesus Christ himself as a gift through faith. And that's possible because according to verse 25, God put Jesus forward to be a propitiation, to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross. The penalty due to sinners, due to glory thieves, fell on Jesus. That's why he went to the cross to suffer. Of what sin was Jesus himself guilty? Had he ever exchanged the truth of God for a lie? No, he was the truth incarnate. Had he ever traded the glory of God for a lesser glory? No, not even when Satan had tempted him with all the kingdoms of the world. Had he ever failed to live in right relationship to God as a man? No, he said that his food was to do the will of his Father. But Jesus went to the cross so that God could treat him as though he had. He went to the cross to be punished as an idol worshiper, as a truth suppressor, as a glory exchanger, as a cosmic rebel. The perfect son of God was crushed beneath the wrath of God on the cross. His body broken, his blood poured out to pay the price for glory thieves like you. He endured the cross so that all who trust in him, in his death, his burial, his resurrection, will be forgiven of their idolatry, forgiven of their truth suppressing and their glory stealing. And in fact, he offers that freely right now to anyone in this room who will turn from their sin, who will turn for their preference for their own glory and their own comfort and their own money and turn in repentance to Christ the all-glorious Redeemer, right now he offers to you salvation, forgiveness of sin. So Jesus brings forgiveness for the failure to glorify God. He gives his righteousness to his people. And he remakes those who come to him. Those who believe in Christ are remade in the image of Christ. By union with Jesus, our old identity in Adam is killed and we're renewed in the image of the new man, Jesus. Listen to Paul's instruction in Colossians 3, 9 9 through 11. Paul writes this, Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old man, Adam, with its practices, and have put on the new man, Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Those who belong to Christ by faith are in the new man, Jesus Christ, and we are being renewed in the image of Christ progressively. We're free now to obey God and love our brothers and sisters like Jesus did, which restores the God-glorifying purpose for which we were made. 
And surprisingly, those in Christ are restored to participate in that very mission. We're not only recreated images, but we're commissioned as messengers of glory to participate in the recreation of others. Now, in your bulletin outline, I have listed there 2 Corinthians 4, but I'd like you to actually go to 1 Thessalonians 1. I think it will be helpful for you to see there how Christians are messengers of glory. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 to 10. First Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll pick it up at verse 4. Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So Paul says, we know, Thessalonians, we know, we know you've believed the gospel because we saw the effects in your life right away. And he says, your reception of the word of the gospel is, is renowned. Everybody knows in this region that you believe the gospel. And what is it that's made clear to everyone that they received it? Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul says, here's what happened. We told you the gospel. You received the gospel. And you stopped worshiping idols and started worshiping God. In other words, through the proclamation of the gospel by Paul and his companions, idol worshipers were changed into God worshipers. Now just step back and think for a minute about how mind-blowing that idea is. God makes the world. He makes people in his image by his word. Now, through Jesus, God is remaking people in the image of his son, by the proclamation of the word of the gospel. And the crazy thing is, he's entrusted people like you and me to do it. He's enlisted us to speak that word, which has the power, by God's grace, to transform people into the image of Christ, to turn them from idols to the living God. It is through Christians telling the good news of the crucified, risen Savior that God speaks the new creation word of life into their hearts. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says. And this is actually what we are saved for. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 9. It says it this way. You, Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were called out of darkness to proclaim the glory of God in the gospel of his Son. Those who were rebels against God, he forgives in Jesus, remakes in the image of Jesus, and then gives the privilege of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus so that others are reborn and remade. Mission initiated in creation, mission threatened by sin, mission restored in redemption. 
And we can look ahead because the accomplishment of this mission is not up for grabs. We know the end of the story. Now, I've already said we're being renewed in the image of Christ now, but we look with eager anticipation to when that image will be perfected at the return of Christ. We will be raised incorruptible, bearing both inwardly and outwardly the perfect image of Christ, the man of heaven, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ will judge those who have persisted in rejecting him, and we will welcome and he will welcome those who bear his image into a new created world. And because humanity, the pinnacle of God's creation, will be freed from sin, the creation itself will be freed from corruption to glorify God. Flip back to the book of Romans one more time. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. beginning in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Of God. Creation itself is longing for the day when we're freed so that creation will be freed. In that day, brothers and sisters, you will be free from corruption just like your risen Savior. The creation will be free from corruption. Completed will be the labor of proclaiming God's glory for the salvation of sinners. But we will still proclaim. We will spend an endless eternity praising the one on the throne and the slain lamb forever and ever. And so the mission will be accomplished. The earth will be filled with God's glory as the waters cover the sea. That's the end. Mission accomplished. Now we've seen what God is up to in the world. His mission from beginning to end is to fill the earth with his glory through people made, now remade, in the image of his son. But still, the existential question from the two-year-old presses us. What are we doing here? I'm really asking, does your life as as an individual and our life together as a church, does it align with God's glory mission? It ought to. God's mission is what we were created for. It's what we were recreated for. It's the end game toward which everything in human history is bending. So let's think about our lives individually. Let's ask ourselves some questions. Let's, beginning by, let's begin by assessing our glory proclamation, our personal work of evangelizing, of proclaiming the gospel. Now, you are by nature a glory proclaimer. You're always inviting others into the glory of something that you love. Think of something that excites you, that interests you, that you wish more people knew about or benefited from. Maybe that's a restaurant you like or a hobby you enjoy or a favorite sports team or a political candidate or a book or a podcast. I'm asking you to think about what you are regularly and openly passionate. Now ask yourself this painful question. What is the ratio between your promotion and proclamation of that thing and your promotion and proclamation of Christ and his church? 
Again, we're all messengers and heralds of a thousand things. It's what we're hardwired to do. All the time we're saying, you got to see this, this movie, this game, this person. And I'm asking you to think, what is the thing you're most likely to promote in your communication with others? And I think for many of you, and I include myself in this, the answer is not Jesus Christ. It's Ohio State football. Or it's my kids. And football is fun. And my kids are incredible gifts. But that is not whose glory we were redeemed to proclaim for all eternity. We declare the glory of God in His Son forever and ever. So if we're not proclaiming it now, if we're not singing it now, it's a sign that our personal lives are not completely aligned with God's mission in this world. And if that's the case, as you think about your life, you need to repent. You can't remain contented merely exporting your own small interests. Let's accept responsibility for our silence, for our failure to speak of Christ, and let's ask for grace to grow, to obey, to have our hearts rekindled for the glory and the fame of one who chose to redeem us when we were his enemies, the one who has holy, 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 yet willingly sent his son to suffer a bloody death to bring us to himself. Ask God to give you a holy obsession with his fame so that you will happily export it wherever you go. Now, let's think a little bit about what it looks like to live as a glory proclaimer, as a glory messenger in the various stations and places where the Lord has placed us individually. Given that we've all been called out of darkness and commissioned to proclaim God's glory in the gospel, how do we make the most of it where we've been planted? And the first thing I want to say is that some of you need to actually consider whether you might need to be unplanted from here and go somewhere else for the sake of gospel proclamation and God's glory. That might mean doing what the Disslers are doing, giving some of your life to support the work of proclamation in a foreign context, or it might mean redirecting the whole course of your life, getting training so that you can be directly involved in proclaiming the gospel to people at the ends of the earth who have no access to it, It might mean moving to be part of a new church plant or revitalization in New England, to be a significant weight-bearing member in a church that's trying to get its legs under it. We've got a couple guys in our NETS program right now who are looking to plant or replant in the next couple years. And maybe you need to think hard about going and being a part of seeing gospel proclamation take root in an area of New England that presently has no gospel witness by supporting a new local church. Now, most of you are not going to go in that way. You will be here, leveraging your station in life for the sake of God's glory. And the wonderful thing is, for those who stay, we get to live on the cutting-edge mission field that is the state of Vermont. Last spring at one of the men's nights, we looked at the life of St. Patrick, the 5th century missionary to the Irish. Now, Patrick's desire was to preach the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth, a place where Christ was unknown, pagan Ireland. It struck me then, and again this week, that we live, as it were, on that frontier. You don't have to sail across the Irish Sea to, to find the pagan wilderness. It's right out those red doors. It's right out front. You have the privilege, and it is a privilege for Christians, 
to labor that Jesus might receive glory from this dark corner of the earth. He is worthy of glory from people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that includes the people of Williston. He is worthy of glory from those who live in Essex Junction. He is worthy of glory from Burlington and from Colchester and Richmond and Jericho and Winooski and Hinesburg. He's worthy of glory from all over our county. Is he not? And you've been commissioned to spread that glory. That's your real job. Whatever you do during the day, that's incidental to your true calling. So have your antenna up to make proclamation happen in your day-to-day, in your job, at school, in your relationships in the community. Take advantage of the gospel proclamation opportunities here, because if you get them here, we will give them the gospel. We guarantee it. Who do you know that would be a good candidate to invite to Mom Connections tomorrow, or to Awana this Friday night? or to the Christianity 101 Sunday School class that's going to be starting next Sunday at 8.30. Think about it. You can write it down right now. I'm giving you permission to write it down right now. Who do you know? And it's not just, as, it's not just our jobs and connections out there that need to be subsumed by our role as glory messengers. It's also our roles as family members. Moms who stay home with the kids Do you see your role as a mom controlled by your calling as a messenger of glory? You know, the world around us often tells you that being a mother is an impediment to glory and self-actualization. Please don't buy that. You're a glory messenger. You have a captive audience for proclaiming the glory of Jesus. You're part of a mission far greater and more important than the most successful companies in our nation. You get to nurture your kids in the gospel, the gospel that can save them from the everlasting peril of hell and transform them into the image of Christ. That's your work, moms. And dads, that's our work too. Boy, it can be easy to be distracted when you're home, can it, to leave your mind at work or to just check out and watch sports or play video games. But let's work to be heralds of glory, men, at home to the kids that God has given us. And that applies to you aunts and uncles and grandparents as well. Your job is to be more than just the fun relative, you know, the alternative to the parents. You have a unique relationship, don't you, from which you can proclaim the gospel in the hope that your niece or nephew or grandchild will turn from their own glory to Jesus. So let's leverage those family relationships for God's glory mission. And let's be messengers of glory even in the interactions we have with people with whom we have no real relationship. I'm talking about people in the waiting room or the person who cuts your hair or the person you're next to in line or that you sit next to on the plane. These are people we're around all the time who need to turn from their sin and give praise to the Lamb You need to be ready to give a gospel word to that person. Now, this is an area where I'm particularly weak, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. So how can we practically move ourselves forward? Just three suggestions for having those conversations with people out and about where you are. First, I already mentioned this, but pray that God would 
would cause you to care more about his glory and his fame than your own. Pray. If you're weak in this area, make it a matter of pointed prayer in the next couple of weeks that God would give you the grace to speak of Christ and his church out of a desire to see his glory spread in our region. Second, be prepared to speak and invite. So when you're out and about, keep those church cards we supply, you know, out here in the front and downstairs. Keep these in your wallet or in your purse. Keep some ultimate questions in your car so that you can't excuse yourself. Well, I would have said something if I had the... No, you've got it. You're ready to go. Always be ready. And third, be intentionally aware of the people around you in the places you go. In other words, I'm encouraging you to leave your phone sometimes in your pocket and look at who's around you when you're waiting in line. Phones can obviously be very handy, but they can keep you from seeing the person right in front of you who's made in the image of God, who needs to be remade in the image of his son. So let's get our eyes up. Let's get our mouths speaking, proclaiming Christ for his glory. Now we've considered aligning our individual lives with God's mission. Now I want to pivot to consider our life together as a church. What shall we do as a church to make sure that what we're doing here is aligned with God's glory mission in the next 30 years? And the first thing I want to say is that we must continue to focus our ministries as a church on proclamation. I hope you see why that is from the text we've covered. It's the proclamation of the gospel alone that transforms sinner to saint, from idolater to worshiper, from being in Adam to being in Christ. It's the only way to fill the earth with reflections of Jesus' glory. And so we need to remain unapologetic that every ministry of this church is going to be built around the proclamation of the gospel. There are a thousand lesser things that could become the focus of our ministries. Helping needy people in our community trying to achieve certain political goals, educating our children. Some would say the focus should be eradicating some of the world's most egregious problems, world hunger, human trafficking, certain diseases. And many of these goals are very noble. But we need to be laser-focused, brothers and sisters, on the fact that the church is the only institution entrusted by God with the proclamation that transforms sinners. We're the only ones in the proclamation business. So that's what we must be happily obsessed with. So the focus of our ministries is not up for grabs. It's been proclamation. It will be proclamation. But with that clear focus, now we're freed up to be creative in a genuinely helpful way. The elders and the staff of this church need your help in brainstorming ways and venues to proclaim this gospel effectively. Your creativity is needed. I love that in the last year, we had a group of folks who said, you know, we've been playing volleyball on Monday nights. We have a lot of people coming out. What would you think of making that a ministry of the church and having a gospel talk at halftime? Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. You've already got people there. Let's preach the gospel there. I was talking with some of the brothers last week on the golf scramble. We were uh, golfing. And... uh, (laughs) And we were commenting on how helpful it was a few years back that we moved the gospel talk from the end of the event to the beginning with breakfast so that nobody missed it and it provided opportunity to talk as you go. Well, that's a great idea. That's a creative idea. It's a great idea. We need that kind of creativity. But it's creativity in the service of gospel proclamation. 
It's been our focus for the last 30 years, and by God's grace, it will continue to be the heartbeat of our ministries for the next 30 years. Second, we want to make sure our church continues to be aligned with God's mission by serving happily for the sake of gospel proclamation. What am I getting at here? I'm saying that in order to do what I just described, building and running ministries that creatively proclaim the gospel, it's going to take a lot of people. It's going to take all the people serving, working together to make that happen. It takes a whole team of people pulling in the same direction. At our 30th anniversary service, Mitch said something I found really helpful. He said he hopes that at CMC's 50th anniversary, we still feel like a church plant in many ways. And his point was that in a church plant, everybody jumps in and helps in whatever unglamorous way is needed. You set up the chairs, you wash the kids, you show up for work days. To say it another way, in a church plant, everyone goes home tired on Sunday. And if this church is going to continue to eagerly and creatively minister the gospel week in and week out in a variety of ways and venues, that means all of us are going to need to happily serve, to happily spend and be spent so that others can hear this gospel, believe it, and be transformed into the image of Christ. So to be honest, if you're looking for a church where you can come and receive and kind of put your feet up, you're not going to be happy here. We're aiming at God's glory, not our comforts. Now, that's not to say we don't receive here. We receive in tons of ways. I mean, I don't know how you feel just about our gatherings here on Sunday mornings, but I think it's just an absolute feast for our souls to get to be with brothers and sisters, to hear the gospel words sung and prayed and preached, to hear testimonies of God's grace in the share time, to eat and to drink at Christ's table. What a feast we have here every week. Christ himself serves us in the elements of, these serv- in the elements of this service. But when that feast is over, we get up, we push in our chairs, somebody does the dishes, somebody mops the floors, somebody washes the kid, watches the kids. <laughs> you decide. And then we all walk out those doors and we get to work inviting others to the feast. Because the mission is that the glory we've enjoyed here would not stay here, but would flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. So church, as we begin another ministry year, a year filled with abundant opportunities to herald the gospel, let's commit ourselves not to being served, but to serve happily for the goal of gospel proclamation. And one final way to make sure our mission as a church aligns with God, and that's by giving sacrificially for the advance of proclamation. Here I'm I'm talking about finances, I'm talking about money. You know, we want to see the glory of God spread through proclamation, not just here from our church in Chittenden County. For 30 years, we've labored to see God's glory flood New England, our nation, and the ends of the earth. And we recognize that that's best accomplished, not by just throwing individual Christians out there all over the map, but by planting local churches led by qualified men well-trained in the scriptures, who give themselves full-time to the proclamation of the gospel. We want to see New England. We want to see the United States. We want to see the world dotted with churches, little glory houses filled with love for one another, where the glory of God and the gospel is heralded week after week after week. That's why missions accounts for nearly 20% of our church's budget 
And that's not counting things like quarterly offerings for missions trips or for fellow churches or to pay for seminary training for men in our church. It's why NETS exists, our church planning and revitalization ministry, NETS. It exists to train qualified men and send them to plant and replant churches in New England and beyond. And as was said, as I already said, most of you aren't going to go. You're not going to participate in that work directly. But you know what you can do? You can give. You can give financially. You can support our church as it supports this work. The simple fact is that sending qualified gospel preachers is expensive work. Sending missionaries around the world is expensive work. And it's not getting any cheaper. I'm sure you're aware of that. The price of everything in our economy is up. It's widely reported that many Americans are cutting back. They're tightening their budgets. They're not eating as much steak, I read yesterday. Now, giving up steak is one thing. But cutting back on giving is entirely another. I hope that when you think about what's expendable on your budget, giving to support the work of this ministry is not on that list. No, if we're going to give in such a way that proclamation can happen not only here, but in New England and beyond, our financial priorities are going to have to look different from the people we live around. There may be purchases we delay. There may be improvements to our home that we forego. There may be a level of retirement security we don't attain. There may be certain vacations that we don't take. Why? Because our ambitions are larger than our own lives and even than our own church. We want all the peoples of the earth to taste and see that the Lord is good. We want his glory to be known in Vermont and in Rhode Island and in Utah and in Japan Japan and in Ukraine and everywhere else. The only way that happens is if the people of God, for the advance of proclamation, give sacrificially. So let's commit ourselves to doing so, and in so doing, align ourselves with God's mission. Brothers and sisters, we know what God is doing here. We know what he's doing here in this world. He is transforming sinners through the proclamation of the gospel so that the earth is filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. By God's grace, let's get on board with his mission for the next 30 years and beyond. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to say thank you for sending your son Jesus on mission for us. He came not only to show us your glory, but to cause us to be able once again to reflect your glory and to enjoy you forever. Thank you. And now take this word that we've heard, plant it within us, cause it to bear fruit for the sake of our own lives, for the sake of the life of our church, for the sake of our region, for the sake of the nations, for the sake of your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.